Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. And Bill, we have uh, – we're continuing our Theology and Outline series. Right. An hour honoring of the Reformation tradition. 500 years. We're coming up on 500 right. years. Yeah, we are. We were on hiatus a bit. You were on vacation. You had a nice vacation. I did. And I, I, I went shopping at the Atlantic City Outlets and I bought this T-shirt and several others. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, for $10 at the J. Crew Outlet, this is a superior T-shirt. I mean, I'm talking like the comfort level and just the stitching for a T-shirt, for a cotton T-shirt. Uh, this is a very, very, very nice. Another free another free uh, advertisement that we're given. As we said when we first started on Facebook Live, our prayers and thoughts are with the folks of, uh, I was going to say South Florida, but it's the whole the whole state. And uh, it moves up. And, of course, the tragedies that happened in the Caribbean, and they're dealing with another storm uh, on the back of this one. And um, earthquakes in Mexico and Guatemala. And the recovery still happens in Harvey, uh, in Houston. And, again, for t- tomorrow, we'll bring back many painful memories for folks because tomorrow is the 16th anniversary of 9-11. So a lot of stuff going on right now. Yeah, it's not, uh, it's not, it's not a uh, time of non-earnest, serious things. Yeah, yeah, no. Um, so, all right, <laughs> okay, we're, really, we're really setting the mood here. Uh, well, you're, you know, I, I actually, well, it is, it is the mood. It's what's going on. It is, on. it's and, apocalyptic. Well, it is, it's, uh, you know, which happens on a fairly regular basis anywhere in the world. Just uh, it's happening to us right now. And in wake of all this, we also lost uh, this past week, I guess it's been over a week, what we, who, you, who we both feel is, was the greatest living American theologian. Absolutely. Robert, Robert Jensen. Jensen. He wrote a beautiful piece uh, that was in, uh, posted by the Mockingbird folks and, and quoted by Christianity Today. And uh, so let's kick off our tribute to Robert Jensen. By the way, you interviewed him. Yeah. Did yeah. you ever sit in on any of his classes? I, no, I know. You know, because when he was in Princeton, he was at the CTI. And I think, like, he would do reading groups and stuff like that, but he didn't do many, uh, like, cla- like that class was a, was a unique thing he did with undergrads that semester. Yeah, I got to actually sit in uh, on an intimate lecture. I was uh, took a mini sabbatical, and part of what I did was sit in on— um, was it, He was at CTI? Yeah, but I sat, yeah, I sat in on Migalori's Bart PhD seminar. That, I took that seminar. That yeah. seminar was, it was good. stellar. Very, very good, and Jensen came over and spent some sessions with us, which was amazing. But, did uh, he do it—like, I mean, what Migalori used to do was— like basically, you he we read about Bart's doctrine of the Trinity through all the volumes. Like we traced the yeah. theme, and then he would also put different theologians like Jensen and other people in conversation with Bart. Right. And so Jensen it's, himself came in was yeah. And so you really actually learned in that seminar not just Bart, but you learned like the relationship of yeah. Bart to late twentieth yeah. century theology. I thought it was a great way to teach it. Yeah, it was. It was. Um, yeah, like I said, he and Doctor Migalori was kind enough to let me sit in. So thank you. Uh, he's a great guy. Yeah, yeah. Good. So, so we we are comparing again our third, I think, part of the series. We are comparing the theologies of Robert Jensen and Brian Garish. Brian Garish's brief uh, uh, dogmatics in outline and Jensen's theology outline. And so, yeah. So here we are, and we're in we're in episode three. three. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's one. There's a. Uh, there's one we have to back go back and redo. We weren't pleased with the outcome. I did, this is Jason Michelli's comment from Facebook, by the way. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna read it out. This one, <laughs> but um, just he noticed. I was. I was a cameo in that movie. Yeah, it was a cameo. Yeah, very good. So thank you, Jason. But so it's interesting because we saw that that where Garish starts with creation, 
Jensen starts with Israel. Right. And, and, and Garish starts with the human experience of creation. I mean, elemental faith. And he's, he's not thinking of like, he's not going back to creation meta histories per se. He's talking about this is what the presupposition behind Christian faith supposes a world that's ordered and uh, moral and purposeful and, and, and that sort of thing. And how Christian faith comes in and complements, strengthens, confirms elemental faith Christologically. Yeah, I think he, he's, he starts where there's a common ground. In other words, where most people, he starts at a point where most reasonable people you could talk with. Yeah. Yeah. And then he moves on to estrangement, which is, which is a great term. I mean, because he th- he's thinking of if the broad umbrella term of what happens in Christian faith is reconciliation, then estrangement is what, you're, is right. what reconciliation addresses. And then he talks about God and evil. Uh, and there, so Jensen, after Israel, moves to the resurrection of Jesus and then a brief discussion in the next chapter of the Trinity. Yeah. So that's a really different. It's funny because Garish, like Schleiermacher, has the Trinity at the end. Right. I mean, it, I mean, it's it's sort of a capstone thing. It's not Gar and, and and Garish deals with sin and the the work of the Redeemer before he really gets to actually the person of Christ. Yeah, and I think Jensen is, in some levels, is following. Um, it's following the rule of faith. He's following what the early church had to do. He's following actually kind of how the early church built its faith from the from the ground up or from whatever ground it was, you know, the ground of being uh, people who either were Jews who believed Jesus was, was the Messiah or uh, Gentiles who accepted that the Jewish Jesus was the Messiah and their Savior. And I think the the order is really kind of in many ways brilliant because it is, first of all, the rule of faith, the, you know, the Israel, the God of Israel has raised Jesus from the dead. And then the chapter on the Trinity, which I think is amazing. And I'm actually working on my lecture right now for the second century. I'm teaching uh, a class this semester up at New Brunswick Theological Seminary. And it's really interesting the way he deals with both the the, the modalist and uh, the Logos, the early Logos people on how do you try to communicate this, the relationship between the one God, uh, which has different, you know, the one God in Hellenistic thought is different than the God of Abraham, Isaac. Oh, Jesus. absolutely. But yeah. but you're merging these concepts together. Yeah. 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 Trying, how do you make that comprehensible? And what is the relationship between the Father and the Son? Now, his chapter on Jesus and resurrection, which precedes the Trinity chapter, There's it, this is now one of my two favorite chapters on Jesus. The other one is in a book called Unapologetic by Francis Spufford, which is the subtitle is Why Despite Everything, Christianity still makes strange emotional sense. It's a great book hmm. about Christian faith. He's a British convert, adult convert, hmm. um, and a novelist, essayist, and brilliant guy. He has a chapter called Yeshua in there, which is excellent. This chapter, if you were going to say, hey, if somebody said, what's the deal with Jesus? Why Jesus? I think this is one of the best short explanations of why the Jesus story hmm. and how we get from the first century to the 21st century, why, you know, the, yeah. why this is proclaimed. I, I think it's just, it's stellar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so, so uh, tell us why you think it's. Well, stellar. first of all, I love how he says that, like, basically we don't know that much about you. Nobody knew what to make of Jesus then. Modern historians don't know what to make of now. <laughs> so he was it's very difficult to, to get a beat on. And we have strange biographical details, like through these, the apostolic memoirs, you know, we, this is, this is what we've got here. Uh, and, and, you know, it's interesting because, he talks about what the expectations were for Israel at the time. You know that that why why messianic expectations, and this notion of 
a prophet preaching anything. He says basically Jesus is a rabbi, but a rabbi who's teaching like he wrote the book, like he's got the authority of the author. He's a prophet proclaiming the kingdom. But what's strange about his proclamation is if the kingdom is the coming of God, he seems to identify your reception of him with your reception of the kingdom. The kingdom and the king are the same thing. And then he's a healer. And so, I mean, I think those things summarize nicely streams of the tradition we see in all the Gospels. Right. Yeah, and it would be hard. And and those are most things that the historical, even the historical Jesus people can affirm that that's, that's who he was. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's interesting that he notes that, that for Israel, um, he says, the God portrayed in the Old Testament, Israel's memory of its life is the God who's active in history. You know, the God of the living, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he notes that that, God and death are flatly opposed to each other in Israel's understanding of things. This is, this is not religiously common. Think, for example, of the religion of ancient Egypt, where the dead and the gods are very nearly identified with each other, where the way to become a god is by dying. And that that's not how Israel saw its god. No, it was the living god. Right. And then he he even talks about what's interesting, that, that Israel, he says, you know, that na- most nations can't think of themselves as not existing, right? And, and yet, like, we, we can think of America in decline, we can think of America on the rise, we can think of America going bankrupt, we can think of dystopian futures, but it's hard for us to, as people to just think that America won't exist. It's easier for me lately. <laughs> lately, yeah, yeah, you are. But, you know, he says Israel was able to conceive of this because part of its story was when it was not. Yes. You know, that, that, now you could say some of that is true about America because we're such a young country, but but Israel unique among nations in the ancient world. And then yeah, after yeah, the yeah. exile, there are people that survive without nationhood. So they, they're a nation that knew that, that basically there are people whose nationhood was a pretty limited part of their history. Yeah. And it's actually, you know, one of the more interesting conversations in religious Judaism within Israel right now is can our, can we reconcile our Zionism and our Judaism? So that's not only a reality, it's a tension somehow to be a nation and, a, and to be a people of faith, a follower of, of Yahweh and, and a, a nation. That creates sometimes, that creates certain tensions. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting that Jensen says that basically this, this question that Ezekiel, uh, that God poses to Ezekiel, when these bones live, he says that, you know, Israel's history ultimately it, it leads to a climactic confrontation between Israel's God and death. And so Israel's question is really the question that every people eventually ask. Does death win? Does life have any other point than its own refutation? And then I love this sense. What happened to, Is- uh, to Israel from one point of view then was the historical outworking of all, of all questions. Martin Heidegger, the greatest and most wicked philosopher of the 20th century, <laughs> built the whole structure of his thought of the message that what it means for me to be a human being fulfills itself precisely and that I, am, I, that I not only die – but live my whole life doing nothing but affirming my oncoming death. <laughs> yeah, that's a great line. And, you know, it, both in the Psalms and in Job, you know, how can, how can I praise you from the grave? Yeah, yeah right. I mean, it's, it's uh, by the way, Jensen's not really neutral on Heidegger. And that's one of the things I asked him about. He, he was at a, a retreat that Pannenberg took him on with all these theologians in the Black Forest. And, like, the second day of the retreat, like, Heidegger shows up. And he's, and he's like, it was a really interesting experience. Why? Well, because I thought, gosh, this guy's smart. And yet everything he's saying, saying I'm thinking, bullshit. 
<laughs> I'm just trying to think. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in a retreat in the Black Forest, and suddenly Heidegger walks up. That sounds like that could be a. That should be a play. That should be an off-Broadway play. They said. He said. Then he looked, Heidegger shows up. They said he looked like an apple farmer. I'm wondering that's because his hand is going. Oh, <laughs> no, <don't. laughs> Uh, I mean, Heidegger was, I mean, a he Nazi. was a Nazi. Yes. He was a Nazi. a Nazi. Yes. And you can actually understand. Well, let's not get off on that. My so. friend Howard Baker had a friend who did, who did a PhD on Heidegger and didn't know until after he finished that Heidegger had become a Nazi. But no, the interesting thing about that is that's how Heidegger taught philosophy. Like the new lecture on Aristotle, they would say he'd be like, Aristotle was born, he lived, he worked and he died. Now let's just go on to his thought. Like, no context. Well, when you're Heidegger, that's a really important way to do background. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So in, in that, you know, in he, and so I think part of his, the significance for him of the resurrection mm-hmm. is that you, and he has some interesting, like he points to Pondenberg, who says basically, he says Pondenberg might go a little far, that basically the only historical plausible thing is the resurrection. But he says, you know, he makes a good point that, what? Why would people like, for instance, if you're hailing a, a would-be Messiah who's shamefully dead, and you're worried about you maybe suffering the same fate, you're not going to tend to run around and say he's still living. <laughs> like these are there are many things that that actually seem to 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 ought to make what the apostolic witness says at least a live option. He thinks. Right. Yeah. That you, you have yeah. to take this seriously because. Some of the other things don't seem to right. make as much sense. It's at the very least foolishness to the Gentiles and a stumbling <laughs> block to the Jews. Yeah, and I think, you know, I just gave that lecture last week. And, you know, historically, I think you can say beyond a reasonable doubt um, that his people, from just a purely historical, that the followers of Jesus really believed he raised from the dead. And, you know, the only evidence we have for it is the things that were written, some of them within 20 years of it, of his life, and um, and the ongoing, you know, hanging, handing down that tradition. So they could have made it up, but they believed it. <laughs> if they made well, it up, they believed it. And, and then what's interesting is he talks about how retrospectively then they're looking at all these Old Testament passages like, well, if Jesus asked for wine from the cross, this must be – like the, he so strongly identifies with Israel's death and resurrection. Yeah. Like they see that – and so that this is uh, – that this is, you know, it, it, I, I think why, what's significant here is that the reason there's a significance to the cross is because of the resurrection. Like, without the resurrection, nobody's making theology to the cross. It's just a really shitty Friday. <laughs> yeah. But, but so it's retrospectively, this, the Jesus story's significance comes because in it, it the, these early Jews see the decisive confrontation between the God of Israel and death as happening in Jesus. Right. And, uh, of course, the New Testament's written by Jewish followers of Jesus, and there's high Christology in both John and Hebrews. So, I mean, I think it's an, it's an interesting, it's an interesting, um, I, again, I think reading the Gospels not only as faith texts, but also as witnesses to what the early church actually thought and processed, I think is a helpful, I think that's a much, that's an often lost dimension of the search for the historical Jesus. Well, yeah, the, the, basically, instead of Jesus of history versus Christ of faith, there it's like, it's... It's yeah, it's the same book that they... Right, exactly. These, yeah. these were, the, the, the apostles were theologians. I mean, they were doing theology. They, you can't pull apart the theology from the testimony to the to the to the story of Jesus. Well, I think they're theologians in the same way any of us trying to make faith, sense of our faith. 
Uh, they certainly were intentional works, and they were trying to. I like the way Jensen says they were hurrying up to try to make sense, writing yeah, down while yeah. they still remembered stuff. So there was a kind of urgency, you know, behind the gospel project and a necessity based on Jesus didn't return, as they thought. So they need to write this down. And also, you know, you can speculate on all the different individual concerns of each community behind the gospels. But no, I think it's, it is, it is whatever we're going to say about Jesus from any particular perspective, whether it be faith, uh, theologically, historically, um, our sources are the witnesses of these people who believe that God had raised them from the dead. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? Gracious conversations characterized by a particular combination of wit, empathy, reflection, and human understanding. If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going and you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. Being a Patreon sponsor is really just you being a patron of an art form you enjoy and are passionate about. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David and Winona Babicone, Michael Butera, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, and David Zoll. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting too, in the conclusion he talks about what resurrection body is, and, and what a body is, and how a body makes you available to right. somebody. It's where you, And then, you know, he has this neat, interesting discussion of where heaven is. Like when the, the tradition says he ascended to heaven, he says, you know, in the ancient universe, up, it makes sense, but basically he thinks heaven is... He says it's God's pad in his creation. <laughs> that if God is involved in history and space, that God needs a place. And he thinks heaven is the place where God dwells in creation. And so he says, rather than think of it as up, think of it as future. So heaven, the place where God dwells, is in the future he promises for his people. So, when Je- so in some sense, when Jesus is coming in the resurrection appearances, where is he coming? He's coming back from the future. Instead of back to the future, he's coming back from the future. You know, in 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 the for gents in you know the 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 kind of it's the already not yet, and he's coming from the not yetness. Yeah, that's Jensen's view. Yeah. Now the Trinity, I thought was which a, I think is interesting. It is a very interesting way to think about it. And you got to you got to, and we all we're all now thinking about the movie too. Exactly. Yeah, that's we've the meta- you know Donald Trump Biff in the future, but that was mild after Donald Trump. Future Biff. Yeah, that doesn't yeah. surprise me. All right. So there you go. Now, the Trinity, I thought, uh, again, I, I thought, like you and I talked on the phone, his summary of the Cappadocians, I thought he did better in two paragraphs with a lot of us. Doing, I've ever, yeah. yeah no, a lot of us yeah. doing and PhD lectures and, 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 and know, seminars, that, yeah. The, the word uh, hypostasis, right, which allows a person, one being, three, per, yeah, he, he says identities. 
Right. Okay. So for those of you, real quick, the, the the word the Cappadocians used to describe the three. Yeah. Is is it's they're one being Uzi, one being, but three hypostases. Mm-hmm. And normally, right in the ancient world, it would have been like being one being one hypostasis, right, like right, a per, right, like yeah. with, they were, with they were often used as synonyms. Yeah. And so here they're saying, and Jensen says three identities. And what he says actually is that makes a really interesting point that Vish, he points to two Jewish theologians, Michael Vishagrad and Peter Oaks. Who pretty, I studied. I studied with Peter Oaks. Peter Oaks is a pretty bright guy. Uh, and we'd actually had conversation. We had a conversation about exactly what Jensen said. This is very interesting because he says, look, Israel has, there's these different senses of the identity of God. There's God who is transcendent, right? Like over Israel and is transcendent. Then there's the identity of God in Israel's history. Like, and sometimes the Shekinah can, or the Malak, the Malik, yeah. Yeah, the messenger, or the of messenger, God. right? Yeah. The messenger of God. And then there's God's identity as spirit. That's sort of the wet wind and energy moving history forward. He says, all of these identities are the one God. And he says, you know, you can see how for the early church, the Trinitarian thinking was still, was live in Israel's imagination. This father being the sort of transcendent one, Jesus being the Shekinah tabernacling with, you know, right. with the, and then the spirit, of course, being the spirit from Ruach, the wind, the energy from the Old Testament. So, so the, he's he's thinking that like, although th- there's a different concept of God than we find in Judaism, they're not. It's not. They're both kind of dynamic monotheisms. Yeah, and if, and if you read intertestament Jewish works, what the the nature of what Sophia takes on, uh, even the figure, the mysterious figure of Metronon, uh, who kind of in some of the Greek Jewish works takes on of is a personification of God as the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord. All that is very present in the thought world and in the language world of the Hellenized Jews like Paul, John, the writer of Hebrews, the people who would who would who were giving the um what's the what's the phrase? What does he use? How does he describe the Trinity in the Bible? Uh foundational there's a use of a he particular says, term. I thought it's an yeah, interesting it, term. No, I remember it was a good term. It was uh it was he says that uh is a primary trinitarian. Primary trinity, yeah. It's like, and I like to, I often try to say the raw materials of the Trinity. And uh, Robert Wilkin, uh, one of the great historians, church historians of our time, says that you know at the end of the first century and the second century, the early church, uh, they had their theology was monotheistic and their doxology and their worship was tritheistic. Yeah, yeah, and you know it is interesting that he has a very good short discussion of the problem of. He's like, look, everybody in the ancient Mediterranean didn't read Aristotle and Plato, but the educated ones were taught the basics of their thought. And what you thought about God, God was this removed from history, not pure, pure thought. I mean, like, and so, and he basically has this great, he has this great uh, phrase where he says, you know, that, that Aristotle's God is a, is a pure act of thought, not even a mind, because there's no material substrata, yeah. the content of which is simply itself. It is an act of thinking about thinking. What makes that a good thing to have around? It pays no attention to us. So why should we pay attention to it? Because it is a sort of anchor from the vicissitudes of time. The way out of the mess of this world is to become just a little bit like this God and thus to forget about what happiness, what happens to me or what I am called upon to do and instead rest in my own self-consciousness. Now, you see, it's interesting because he's getting there at what Garish is getting about elemental faith right. and how the world, we, we need some sense of purpose and order. Right. And he's saying the ancient kind of way approach to this is sort of, you know, to if you're a learned, reflective person, you know, if you've got, you know, leisure time, you know, to think is is to identify with this pure thought. As opposed to Israel thinks God's in a person or some sort of personal and acts in history. And so this is a problem. Like, how do we tell a story 
were about God, when everybody, the, the, the background content of the word is like Rodin's thinker without a body. <laughs> Just like, yeah, like, and, and the Gospel of John gives us a quantum leap towards that. Right. The, logo, the Logos. Yeah, the Logos becoming flesh. And he taught ancient philosophy has this concept of the Logos, the yeah. sort of ordering principle. But then he taught, he has a great summary of like origin and uh, Logos Christology, and this is great, and this is great. And yet there's a big fatal flaw in the system. <laughs> well, all right. You know, I also would say, and this is, uh, you know, I don't have a diagram, but part of what happens too, and this is why worldview matters, okay, and philosophy matters, because the move from middle Platonism to the Neoplatonic worldview, all right, the line, what is created and uncreated, gets pushed up. Yep, yep, and yep. So, and so what happens is that's, and this is important for all of you. I mean, it's funny, I've, I've been, I'll be honest, I've been doing, putting together my PowerPoint for my lecture. And because uh, my, my old PowerPoints are three technologies ago and, and I didn't back it up like I should. So there's a moral lesson there. But I saw, oh, someone had a full, uh, had a full set of lecture notes on or PowerPoint on, on Gnosticism. I thought, oh, all right, maybe I can borrow a couple of slides because it was in the public domain. I got it. But then I, after slide three, I realized <laughs> yeah, this it's is unusable it. because it's, uh, it's the Apollo. It's, it is, uh, it was some sort of conservative Christian attacking new age philosophy through going after Gnosticism. And in the process, they, not only got New Age thought wrong, they got ancient Gnosticism wrong, <laughs> and they did a shipwreck of the Christian faith as well, all in five slides. So part of the whole point— Do you point, want to just say the author of that? <laughs> I'm not going to say the author of that. But the whole point is—and this, those of you would-be apologists out there, and we've talked about this before, I think one of the important things about remembering the Reformation and, and, and taking his time to respect it and think about it and to really admire the creative dynamic, it's one of the more, it was one of the more creative centuries. If you pick, you know, if you pick what was some of the most creative theological work done, that was one of the centuries of the history of the church. But you can't rest in a particular century. <laughs> in other words, you can't, you can't return to the Reformation, whether you're a Calvinist or you can't go back and re, you know, reanimate Anabaptism or whatever you want to do. Um, or pretend that you know the Episcopal tradition is historical. You know whatever you want to do, it's, you, know, you can you can't really recreate a past because the ground on which we do our thinking changes. Now Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and tomorrow, but the power of Jensen, I think, for me, is how he's able to make stay true to the tradition, and yet it may, he's not bound by a 4th century, a 2nd century worldview, a 16th century worldview. It is a living... Faith. Yeah, he is a thoroughly modern theologian. Now, I think he's 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 very orthodox. Yeah, he's but, committed but he to the is, historical faith. Yeah, yeah but, and, he is, and he is using philosophy in interesting ways. I mean, in, in, as subservient, like Bart, I mean, he, he, he's not letting it drive the train. But th certain things about his views... Of of God and history, and uh, there, you, you would only do those moves in the twenty, like in the in in the late modern. Well, what I appreciate, I I have a really high appreciation for what's accomplished in the fourth century about our Trinitarian orthodoxy. You know, of the Nicene and, and the Cappadocian fathers, who he brilliantly summarizes. I, I also like that he admits that the Nicene Creed put into language something that no one understood what they were saying. I love how he says, you know, it took a really smart young priest, Arius, to see the flaw in the law system. That Christ has got to be the, the, the biblical worldview. 
unlike the Neoplatonic, we have all these gradations. Okay, you've got creator, you got creator and creature, and nothing in between. But these logos thing, it always seems like an in between. <laughs> and the fact that no, uh, they they adopted homoousios, and no one actually knew what it meant. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And that's and you know what? First, and that gives me great comfort because it makes me realize that Christians, in many ways, when they get together and make decisions, have been consistently stupid throughout the centuries. And yet somehow, and even in the midst of some things that are misunderstandings or flawed compromises, amazing, beautiful fruit comes out. The Cappadocians take uh, the, uh, let's just say, the grayness of the first Nicene Council and help it become something that actually has been the foundation for Christianity and still is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I, I think, you know, I mean, if you're looking for a window into some historical study. If you want to get your feet, Jensen's a good place to start. And, place, because, and you can follow the footnotes. I mean, you can follow he the... Ma- he's a master of the sources. Yeah, he really is. And succinct. I mean... So you know, that, yeah. I, and, uh, you know, it's, it's of course, I think one of the ways we continue to... We're going to continue to give tribute to him because um, if you haven't read Jensen, I know many of you have, but our ongoing dialogue with him hopefully excites you to get back to him. I, I think if you have a contemporary systematics on your shelf... It should be Jensen. Oh, oh, absolutely. And there's no there. There's well, first up. There's not an American systematic theology I can think of that's that important. That that is nearly as important. Yeah, I also think you. I mean, I think you made a bold statement that you think he's the best American theologian oh, since Jonathan Edwards. Oh, I think that that's. I think that's absolutely true. So. Um, his... Who would you say? I mean, because there's not really. I, no, I, I, I. I mean, Reinhold Niebuhr is an interesting thinker, but he's not really a theologian. No, I mean, he's not. He's no. not. You know, like he's per se. I don't. And I think his shelf life is. I mean, I think he has some really important points and that are helpful. I think H. Richard was probably a little bit of a sharper thinker. Yeah, I'm not. I don't know enough to judge. I think both of them were important folks, but they're not in the same league as no, no. As I, I mean, I, I think ultimately that history will 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 prove that out. Well, you know, um, the great, and speaking of another uh, giant who passed uh, a number of years ago, Yosef Pelikan, uh, his famous quote is, um, tradition is the living faith of the dead, and traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Absolutely. And Jensen in life certainly, uh, you know, personified uh, the greatness of the living tradition. Oh, absolutely. And now his thought belongs to to those of us who continue. Yeah, yeah, can I say one thing in closing to to point out our I'm thinking about where we're going, right? And in conversation with Garish. So no, it's interesting because Garish is a Reformed Presbyterian, Jensen is a Lutheran. But there's this quote, famous quote by Melanchthon, right? Luther's the younger the one, the man who saved Luther. <laughs> <laughs> uh, some people say say you know, our, some our be- friend Adam Morton, but they ruined it. But um, uh, <laughs> that was for you, Adam. Uh, that's for you, buddy. Listen, yeah, uh, he saved it, Adam. Go ahead. Melanchthon in the Loci Communes says, uh, we, we do better to adore the mysteries of deity than investigate them. What is more, these matters cannot be probed without great danger, and even holy men have often experienced this. Um, therefore, this is the reason why we should labor so much. Uh, we, well, there's no reason to labor so much in these exalted topics as God, the unity, of Trinity, unity and Trinity of God, the mystery of creation, the manner of the incarnation. And he sort of goes and, and, and says that he thinks scholasticism is a bit overrated. And he says, for one who is ignorant of the fundamentals, namely the power of sin, the law and grace, I do not see how I can call him a Christian. For from these things, Christ is known. 
since to know Christ means to know his benefits, and not, as they, scholastics teach, to reflect upon his natures and the modes of his incarnation. For unless you know why Christ put on flesh was nailed to the cross, what good will it do you to know merely the history about him? Christ was given us, is given us as a remedy, and to know the language of Scripture, a saving remedy. It is therefore proper that we know Christ in another way, in another way than that which the scholastics have set forth. Now, we could, like, I understand Melanchthon's point that you could, you could get caught in abstract speculation right. and right. be so far from the redeeming power of Jesus and what is the heart of the faith. I do think, though, that, you know, I remember my Calvin teacher <laughs> responding to that, Charles Partee said, I thought that to know Christ is to know Christ. You know? <laughs> and, and was emphasizing union with Christ. Right. Uh, so I think it's interesting here you have Jensen, a Lutheran, who is starting with the person of Christ right. and the Trinity, and then will later get to salvation, sin and salvation, and talking about the benefits. For Garish, the Presbyterian, <laughs> the benefits, he starts with the benefits and starts with estrangement. Again, common ground. We're, you know, we're right. believer. And he has another book called Saving and Secular Faith, which is probably some of the, where some of this stuff is earlier developed. But he, he for, for, I think that Garish would be more comfortable with that Melanchthon statement, the Presbyterian, than Jensen, the Lutheran, who, who, who actually deals with Christ and with the resurrection of Jesus and Trinity before he gets to anything about atonement because it matters who he is yeah and it's just and these are two again you, you know there's I, I realize people not everybody will agree you know not there are people that will line up on either approach right. but it's just helpful to point out those are different approaches it is and we are you know still in awe of jensen thank yeah. you for his for his memory yeah and, and thank you for the the uh he's fought a good fight uh these bones shall live keep safe out there and our prayers are with you god bless i am a pilgrim and a stranger traveling through this wearisome land i've got a home in that yonder city, good Lord, and it's not, not made by hand. I've got a mother, got a sister and a brother who have gone this way before. I am determined. To go and see them, good Lord, over on that other shore. I am a pilgrim and a stranger traveling through this wearisome land. I've got a home in. That yonder city, good Lord, and it's not, not made by hand. Now I'm going down to that river of Jordan just to bathe my wearisome soul. If I can just touch the hem of his garment, good Lord, then I know he'll take me home. 
I am a pilgrim and a stranger traveling through this wearisome land. I've got a home in that yonder city, good Lord, and it's not, not made by hand. 